Father, thanks for a moment to be still before you. As we are constantly rushing about, especially in our weekends, things that we can just stop and be still and ask you to be with us. You're with us, but we invite you to help us understand what's going on here as we journey into this new book, this letter Paul writes uh, to the church in Colossae. Would you help us see it with clear eyes? Would you speak to our hearts, Spirit? Would you convict us of ways we need to be corrected in love and truth in our position as followers of Jesus? I pray that you would use this series in the next 10 weeks in a mighty way in our hearts and our minds and our lives that we would learn what it looks to actually grow in our knowledge of you and walk in a manner worthy of you. We pray that you would do that. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, it was a Saturday morning. This was in 1994. And uh, I was playing on the basketball team in high school, Deer Valley High School, right around the corner. Wow, yeah, okay, there's some Skyhawks in the room, that's right, that's right, not a shame. And uh, this was my junior year of high school, and our coach called a Saturday morning practice, which was a little abnormal. We usually didn't practice in the mornings on Saturday, and uh, we had been unperforming as a team. Uh, we were a little over halfway through our season, and I think we were ranked 10th in the state. At one point, we were doing well, and we lost two games in a row, two consecutive games, and so coach brings us in for a practice. We don't really know what he's going to say or what he's going to do. Uh, we get in there early in the morning, and he goes, everybody come to the middle of the court. So we all go to the center court. He stands right in the middle, and he says, just sit down around the circle here. So we all sit down around the circle, not sure what he's going to say. And he just basically tells us how we haven't been playing to our potential. We need to make some adjustments uh, if we're going to contend for a regional title or a state title. And then at that point, he goes around individually, just player by player, and tells us why we're terrible, uh, specifically. So uh, I assume his tactic as a coach was to somehow fire us up to kind of prove him wrong. It didn't work. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, so I'm about the fourth in the circle. He gets to me, and he just says, Demeter, you hustle more than anybody in this gym. You probably play better defense than anybody on the court, but you can't shoot. I can't put you on the floor if you can't shoot to make a basket. You're not a threat. You're terrible, terrible at shooting. And then he goes to the next person. <laughs> and so, um, I've, what do you think I did with that as an athlete, right? Um, now, he wasn't all wrong. Um, there were areas that I needed to improve in shooting, but I hardly shot the ball anyway, which is, was crazy to me. But what do you think happened every time I took the floor the next several games, and even in practice, every time I caught the ball and had an opportunity to shoot, what do you think I did? I didn't shoot at all, because his voice was in my head, and I was believing the truth of like, you can't shoot, you can't shoot, you can't shoot. He left the program the next year, that, that, that year actually, which I was like, uh, we got a new coach that came in, um, who was the JV coach at the time. Johnny Gussick was pulled up, which was great. Uh, so we got to play together my senior year, sophomore year. And that coach had immense confidence in me. Not just for my shooting, but he kind of gave me the green light. So how do you think I played in contrast to my junior year? 
I played much, much better, even though that voice was still in my head time to time going, oh, I don't know if I should shoot this. I can't shoot. It's interesting the way coaches try to motivate their athletes to perform a certain way. And what we're going to see in our intro here in the book of Colossians is what Paul is doing is he is loving the community at Colossae. He's saying, listen, because this is true of you in Jesus, you have the green light. Live this way. Live in freedom this way. Don't forget. Don't, don't hold on to those things the way you used to live. You've been changed. Your position is different now. You have what it takes, not because of you, but because of Jesus in you to live a life of freedom. That's what we're going to unpack this morning. Paul gives correction. And again, you, you have to be reminded, like when, when this would come in letter form originally to its audience, it would be read the whole letter, all four chapters. So we're taking breaks and we're taking chunks of it at a time. But again, I think Paul, what he's doing, is he's building a foundation of love and trust based on Jesus and our position in Jesus so that he can make corrections. Because my coach, my senior year, the good coach, it's not like he just gave me the green light and I couldn't do anything wrong. He would come alongside me and he would correct me and he would help point me in the right way, but I could actually hear it. So Paul, in this letter, he's going to give correction to the Christians in Colossae, to the church. But because of what he does in this first chapter, they can hear it. And we should be able to hear it too. He corrects their idea that because of their position in Jesus, they get to live a different way. They don't have to live the way the culture lives when it comes to families or when it comes to work. They can live differently because of their position in Jesus. They have access to a new way to live because of the spirit that lives inside of them, and they don't need to get caught up in the way the culture around them lives because they have a different position in Jesus. It reminds me, uh, Lion King was on TV the other day, the old one, the original cartoon, and about halfway through the movie, if you're familiar with that story, Simba, he goes and he runs away because his dad dies, and he thinks it's his fault, and he feels this guilt and his shame, and he runs. Every time we feel guilt and shame, we run and we hide. It's true. And about halfway through the film, he's hanging out with Timon and Pumbaa, doing all kinds of nonsense and living the good life, and it's not satisfying for him. And he realizes that, and that's right about the time that Rafiki, the baboon, it finds him and says, and reminds him in their interaction, he goes, oh, you don't know who you are, to Simba. He's saying, you, you don't know that you are the rightful king. You don't know you're the son of the king. You've forgotten who you actually are. And this is what Paul is doing in this moment to say, don't forget who you are. Because you've made this decision for Jesus, it has totally altered your position, not just for eternity, but for all of life. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. And just to give some introduction, if you're not familiar with the book of Colossians, it is a letter written by Paul. We see that in the intro. He, he tags on Timothy, his disciple, as part of it as well. And he's writing to this little community in Colossae. So the interesting thing about the book of Colossians is um, Epaphras, who we heard and will hear in chapter 4, he's actually the one that's kind of the church planter in the city. So Paul goes to Ephesus, and he stays there for a season, and he starts to plant this church. And one of the guys in Ephesus has come over from Colossae named Epaphras. So Epaphras is there, gets totally radically transformed by the gospel and who Jesus is, and he goes back to his hometown of Colossae and he goes, we need to start this here. 
So Paul's never actually even been in Colossae. And Epaphras is writing back saying, hey, Paul, there's some stuff going on here. Could you help encourage us? I heard the things you said in Ephesus. Could you say that to us? The crazy thing is a lot of scholars believe that Colossae is maybe 40 or 60 people of Christians. That's it. It's this little couple families, small church community, and they're trying to figure out how do we walk with Jesus in the midst of our culture. And Paul writes to them from prison. I love the fact of that. And and even if you think about Revelation, if you're familiar with the end of the Bible, um, John writes to Jesus addressing these churches, and you notice that Colossae is not in that mix. Well, that's because Colossae didn't exist anymore. There was a tragedy that came through and totally wiped out the town. And so even by the time Paul writes in Revelations, Colossae doesn't exist anymore. But I'm so thankful that this is preserved for us, for what it's going to mean for us today. And I love part of Redemption's cultural statements. One of them, one of the six, is that there's no little people and there's no little places. It's from Francis Schaeffer. It's this idea that, like, because you are made in the image of God, it doesn't matter who you are, there's no little people. There's no little places. We should be intentional with the way of Jesus with everybody, including this little town with this little group of Christians. I was on the phone with my buddy yesterday morning, the guy that discipled me in college. And we were just catching up and talking. And at the end, he goes, what are you preaching tomorrow? I said, we just finished the Gospel of John right before Easter. We were in it over a year and a half. And so we're jumping into Colossians for the next um, 10 weeks. And I said, it's funny because when I was a kid, from age first grade, age grade, first grade to third grade, I don't know how old you are when that happens. But at that point, I was living in Colorado. And there were two types of footwear when I lived in Colorado in the early 80s during that time that you had to be aware of that. I don't even know if they use these terms anymore, but one, you had to have a good pair of moon boots. Moon boots are are like these snow boots. I don't know if they call them that anymore, but you had to be right with your moon boots in elementary school because there was snow everywhere. The other thing you had to have in your closet were galoshes. Now, I don't know if you know that word. I asked my 18-year-old son yesterday, do you know the word galoshes? Never heard that word before in his life. Lived in Arizona. You don't, there's no, it doesn't rain here. You don't need this rubber boot that are called galoshes. He didn't know what it was. But when I was living in Colorado at that time, between probably, probably around second grade, I always confused the book of Colossians with galoshes. And I was talking to my buddy yesterday, and I was like, dude, I always had this issue with Colossians because I always think galoshes when anytime the book of Colossians is ever mentioned. And we started laughing about it. And I was like, what if I, every time we open the book for the next 10 weeks and I was preaching, I just said Galoshes and didn't say Colossians. How many people would correct me? Do you think they would care? What would happen? And then he kept going. He's like, dude, you should preach in Galoshes. Every time you step up, you should wear these rain boots. And then people would really remember, man, that was a really weird book. The book of Colossians, Galoshes. Uh, And it's interesting because you wear galoshes when it rains, but the book of Colossians, Colossians, (laughs) is all about the reign of Christ. It's a different type of reign, but it's all about because you make this decision for Jesus, it reigns in every single aspect of your life. It changes you. And so that's what we'll be looking at for these 10 weeks is the supreme reign of Jesus in all of life through this letter. So if you don't 
already have it open, open it up. If you've got a physical Bible with you, you can open it uh, on your phone. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses as Josh read together. Um, And it really breaks up quite nicely. You have an intro for the first two verses where Paul is basically introducing himself as he does often in the letters he writes to the churches that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And he also tags Timothy on, as we mentioned before, because Timothy is his young disciple that he's including in this work. Verse 2, he says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from our Father. He introduces himself. And then verses 3 through 8, which is probably broken in your Bible by paragraphs if you're looking at a physical Bible. Um, And then verses 9 through 14 are another break, another paragraph. And what Paul is doing is he introduces this letter to the Colossians as he is going to correct them in certain areas that they need to be guided in and corrected in the gospel. He uses prayer for those first two chunks of the text. You'll see at the beginning of chapter, or verse 3 and the beginning of 9, he's praying. We always thank God the Father, our Lord, Jesus Christ, as we pray for you. The first section that we're going to look at, he's praying. We're getting underneath the why. Why is Paul praying for this church, for these people? And in the second paragraph, we're going to get what Paul prays for. Why he prays and what he prays. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So follow along with me. Let's read together um, Colossians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 3. We'll look at this first section. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope you have laid up in heaven. This is why Again, Paul's praying, because you have made a decision for Christ. You have hope in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You've heard the gospel. You've taken hold of it. Verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and it's increasing. So Paul is saying this gospel that you've heard, it's increasing. It's bearing fruit, not just in your town, in your little community, but all over the place. Then he says at the end of uh, verse 6 and then starting into 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So again, Epaphras is uh, the boots on the ground, the person being the quote-unquote pastor in that community. And he's writing back to Paul and Paul is responding. This is why Paul is praying. Because they've received the gospel. Now we'll get into the implications of that in a minute and define it for us. But this is why he's praying and writing this letter. What does he pray for? Verse 9 says, And so, from the very day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the, the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let's stop there for a second just to, to, to pay attention to what's happening here. Um, Often, if you are a part of the church or if you're a Christian, think about your prayer list. Think about the things you pray for. Think about the things you pray for others for. It's just so interesting to me when we look at prayer in the Bible and in the story of what Paul and some of the other uh, disciples are praying for the church, what Jesus prays for the church we saw in John 17. And then when I put that list up against my prayer list, it usually looks a little incongruent. Because my prayer list typically looks like, God, would you take care of my circumstances? 
I'm in this situation. I don't really like this. Can you get me out of it? Um, or it's praying for people. Right? I pray that my dad would be healed of dementia. Now, those things aren't wrong to pray for. So don't hear me say that. God calls us to pray for. The, the Bible encourages us to pray for people, to pray for us. But when Paul prays, what does he pray for in this text? Look down at your Bible again in verse 9. He doesn't pray for their circumstances to change. He doesn't pray for him to get out of prison. He's in prison right now. He doesn't put the focus on him. What does he pray with this community? He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and the spiritual wisdom and understanding. That they would be so full of who God is in their understanding that they would be able to walk through the circumstances there. Because we're always going to have to walk through tough circumstances. That's just life. That's living in a broken world. And so for me, it challenges my own prayer life to say, okay, how am I praying not just to get relief from the circumstances I don't like, but how am I praying that I would get more of God? to take me through those circumstances, to help me understand what it looks like to walk alongside people in their circumstances with love. Verse 10. And Paul is the master of, this is like one big run-on sentence, like Paul just is a comma, comma, comma. It's like, you know, we went through the Gospel of John and it's so layered and there's so many um, loaded language that John uses and now we're in Colossians and it feels like, I was telling Stephen this morning, it feels like sitting down and trying to eat a whole cheesecake in one sitting. It's so dense and rich and full. And it's like, Paul, this is crazy. Um, we'll continue to take it bite by bite, but I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's kind of wild when you read it at face value. So verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I pray, he's saying, I want you to be filled with all the knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding so you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, that you may be strengthened with all power according to whose glorious might, his glorious not might, not your glorious might, for all endurance and patience and joy. Wouldn't you like to have endurance and patience and joy in your life, especially in the midst of your circumstances? This is what Paul is praying for this community. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. You haven't qualified yourself. We'll get into that later. Uh, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This word redemption, if you're unfamiliar with it, it was, it was the idea of buying something back. Something was lost and you pay money to get it back. And Paul is saying, because Jesus has paid his life to get you back to the kingdom, you have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. At the end of my college career, this was a year about, about 2000, I was sitting in a living room uh, at a Bible study with some friends. Uh, I was in New Mexico visiting a friend and uh, he's like, hey, let's go to this Bible study I normally go to. I said, sure, let's go. And I sat down in this Bible study, and it was this group of guys, and this guy came in, and he drew this chart on the whiteboard. And I was like, oh, this really makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I have never heard this before. Um, this is really, really helpful as I do my best to walk with Jesus. So we're going to talk through this chart piece by piece using uh, what Paul says as a grid for this chart. Now, this chart... Um, 
you, you can find it. I know it's published at a, a study called Gospel-Centered Life. So, and, and that's an unbelievable Bible study. Uh, it's been thrown around a couple different places. I don't know who the origin of this chart is, but it's massively helpful for me as I think about the gospel implications of following Jesus, what that actually means. So if you start here, I'm just going to walk through it with us together as we kind of overlay it over the text. Um, if that line moving towards the middle represents our life, and if in our life um, the Bible is clear, whether you believe it or not, the Bible is clear that um, until Jesus invades our soul, we are separated from God. We're in the domain, uh, dominion of darkness. And that's just true. And I know that's not popular. Um, a lot of people, and we talked about this when we were covering the Gospel of John, but people will say, you know what, like, um, we're all God's children kind of mentality. I would disagree with that sentiment from a biblical perspective. Uh, I would say, well, all God's creation, we're created in the image of God. We all have inherent value and worth. I think that's true. But because of what happens in Genesis 3, because we are separated because of our sin, because of our imperfection, and God is holy and right, we have a chasm between us and God. And John tells us, as we looked at, that in John chapter 1, verse 12, he said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he be, gave the right to become children of God. So we're not all children of God. As we come out of the womb, we are selfish. We're uh, inherently, uh, you know, curved inward, uh, and we're selfish. And so we live in this domain of darkness until Christ comes in and breaks through. And this domain of darkness is covered in shame. It's covered in having to earn your love. It's kind of covered in this constant striving, never feel like you're measuring up. That's what we're stuck in. We're enslaved to it at the beginning of our life. But what happens and what the Bible says is as Christ comes in and breaks through and changes our reality and draws us to himself by his spirit and wakens us up, takes the scales off our eyes, and all of a sudden we see it. We see Christ for who he is, whether it's somebody who shared it with you, you're looking at it in the Bible, or all of a sudden somehow you go, this is real. And you can't say you did it on your own. Something inside you goes like, I, I believe this all of a sudden. And you take the step of faith in receiving the gift of Jesus in your life, and it changes you forever. And so we get to that point in our life, and we cross over from darkness to light because of what Jesus has done. That middle uh, point in, in between those two lines, it would be called salvation, or like a theological term would be regeneration. You're changed, you're awakened for the first time. And Paul tells us in verse 5 and verse 6 of this first chapter, you heard the word of truth. You heard the gospel. So the gospel has to be heard. It has to come to you some way that you can hear it. And then you understood the grace of God in truth, he says in verse 6. This word gospel, if you're not familiar with it, it means good news. It means what Jesus has done is the good news, how you can cross from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. So once you do that, once you make that decision, whether you're really small and you really do understand it, God opened your eyes at a young age to go on, I believe this is true. I need Jesus. I cannot do it on my own. And you trust and pray and ask Jesus to take over your life. Once that happens, no matter what age you are, you cross over from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. And when that happens, this happens simultaneously. You can throw that next one up. 
your awareness of God's holiness starts to increase, and your awareness of your sinfulness also starts to increase. Now, don't get confused. I'm not saying you sin more once you come to Jesus as kind of like grace abounds and that whole idea. No, it's like you're understanding more about how wretched you actually are as a human. The first one, you start becoming more aware of God's holiness as you get around God's people and you get around God's word and you start to realize this God is perfect. He's right in every way. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He loves his people like I've never seen before. You grow in the awareness of God's holiness, just like we sang about. But you also grow in your awareness of your own sinfulness. I don't know about you, but as I've grown in my relationship with Jesus, I realize, and this continues to happen year after year, where one year I'm going, I didn't think that was a big deal. And then I grow, and the Spirit convicts me. He puts me in front of the passage. He puts me in front of a person. And I realize, oh, that's probably not right. I should probably stop doing that. I remember when I was getting trained in Ohio for ministry, and this was maybe three months in, we're in a conversation in between meetings, and I'm talking to somebody, and the guy that's training me is kind of on my hip. He just happens to be there. And uh, I say something real witty and funny and sarcastic. And, uh, and then we walk down the hall. We're in the bathroom. We're washing our hands. And the guy training me, who he's been here before. A lot of you guys have met Colby. Um, he just leans over to me. It's just like Jesus. We're just along the way. We're washing our hands. And he goes, hey, do you know when you're trying to minister to people, that sarcasm actually creates an unsafe place a lot of the times? And I was like, what? I was like, listen, I grew up in a household that was fluent in sarcasm. That's how we do it. This is what it is. We laugh at each other. This is no big deal. And like, he didn't say anything. He just let me kind of defend myself in the moment. He's just washing his hands. He goes, I'm just saying, if you want to be a safe place for people to grow in their relationship with Christ, you should probably consider how you use sarcasm. He walked out. I was like, stupid Colby. Like, I was like, what? Because like, I, feel, I, I feel that's, again, the house I grew up in. We would throw sarcastic comments to each other all the time. And, and kind of there's a way that we kind of love each other in that. And I get that. I'm not saying it's all bad. But, man, Colby's point was super valid. Going like, yeah, I need to be careful with what I say and not just be so flippant in my words. That was an area of my sinfulness that I was growing in. And God continues to do that in my journey. And what happens as you cross over from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, and really what Paul is praying for in verses 10, he's praying for the knowledge of God, the awareness of holiness, that you would grow in your knowledge of God and who he is and how he's holy. And he's praying that we would walk in a manner worthy of him, that as we see our sinfulness, we would repent from it, we would turn from it, we would go, man, I need to change the way I live and behave. When this happens, you can go to the next one, Steve. The cross does what? It increases. Just like he prays in here. It's increasing. It's growing. It's changing you. It's getting bigger. You should walk into this room a year from now if you're committed to this community. And as you sing, you should have more life in you, realizing who God is in a deeper and a richer way. And you should realize when we come to that space of confession that, man, you are messed up. And the cross gets bigger. It grows. It increases. Here's what happens to a lot of us in our life 
you can go to the next one, is depending how the gospel was presented to you. If it was presented to you as only a ticket to heaven, as only for eternity, as only for, you know what, you are a sinner, God loves you, but you are a sinner, and because of that sin, you need the cross of Christ, you need the sacrifice of Christ so that you can go to heaven, all of it is true, and then that's it, the cross, the gospel, it stays the same size. It does not change because the only reason I need Jesus is to forgive me for my initial sin so that I can get crossed over and go to heaven. And a lot of Christians live this type of mentality. And this is what the guy on the whiteboard was explaining, saying like, if your view of the cross and what Christ has done for you doesn't impact you today just like it did at your moment of salvation, you're probably not understanding it. Because we need the gospel every day. Even the Christian that has been saved from their sin, that has been transferred over to the kingdom of light. We need the truth of God coming to us so the cross can get bigger. We get stuck like this. And here's how this happens. We either do one of two things to minimize the cross. We either start performing, meaning our awareness of God's holiness really isn't increasing because we're performing. We feel pretty good about ourselves. Once we've made the decision for Christ, we feel terrible about ourselves with that. We really need Jesus. But after that, it's like, okay, let me pull up my bootstraps. Let me put my Sunday clothes on. Let me do the right thing. And, and like you start to perform to get to God's holiness instead of allowing the cross to be the only thing that gets you there. You either perform or you pretend. You pretend that your sinfulness really isn't that bad, right? You look at your neighbor and you go, well, like, you're in your small group, your redemption community, and people are sharing freely, and you're going, well, I'm glad you're sharing, but that makes me feel better because you are a mess. I feel pretty good about myself. We'll pray for you. And you start pretending like your problems are less than the person next to you's problems. And when you start doing that, you're starting to rely on your own effort of performing or pretending, and you minimize the gospel and the cross, and it does not grow. And you don't walk in a manner worthy. You can go to the next one, Steve. We need to go back to this, to understanding what Paul is admonishing this community to do is to grow in their awareness of God's holiness, their knowledge of God, and to grow in their own sinfulness, to walk in a manner worthy. They don't have to pretend anymore. They have to come back and confess, and they have to rely on the cross, and the cross gets bigger. Jesus gets sweeter. We need to live that way. So how do we get back from that small cross chart to this chart? I think Paul, what he does is beautiful. He's going to begin to correct some of the behavior to come back. Say, come back. Live in a way that's worthy. You don't have to live this way because of your position. You're getting caught up in these things. Come back to the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done for you. Begin to bear fruit. He does that through prayer, which in the American church we are dismal at doing at best. This is his antidote, is to have a posture of humility to pray for these people because Paul is saying, even though he's going to give uh, tangible things of correction moving forward, he's going to go, unless we pray, unless God's spirit does the work, what are we doing? 
We need to be people of prayer to ask God to change us, to grow us in his knowledge, to grow us in a way to walk worthy of him. We need him to do it. And so we hit our knees and we pray. We also grow in our knowledge of God just being around God's people in community. We grow in our knowledge of God, of knowing him by spending time in his word. Not as a performance thing, not as a a pretend thing, I'm better than you or you're better than me. None of that, but going like, I remember when my wife and I were dating. This is before cell phones. And I came across some emails. I was looking through some old stuff a couple weeks ago, and I came across some old emails of us emailing each other back and forth when we're first dating. And it's like, oh, like we're in love and we're saying stuff. Man, no wonder you married me. Man, like I was just smooth operator, you know? Like it was, I was like, yes, okay. And she was emailing me stuff back. And I was like, but I couldn't, when I would get her email in my inbox and I would open it up, I, I couldn't wait. Like I just wanted to like look over it and go, what does she mean by that? Like this is amazing and exciting and I wanted to sit on every single word because I wanted to know my wife. Do you do that in your relationship with God? Do you spend time in his word? Not because it's checking a box, not because it's some legalistic, well, I have to do it. No, because you want to know God. You want to grow in the knowledge of God. And this is one of the ways you do that. You sit in his word and you soak it in. And God teaches you through it. He reveals himself through his spirit in his word. These are ways we need to get back to trusting God because what we're going to find in this book is Paul is going to kind of do a a praise break in this next uh, part of the chapter and talking about how Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. He affects every single part of your life. When you live that minimizing Christ life, you're only thinking about when you die. But when you live, the, the, the cross gets bigger and expands. It's because God is in every single part of your life and Jesus infects everything you do and think about And when we do that, we'll have life. We'll grow. The cross will get bigger. And he'll help us walk in a manner worthy of him. Let's be those types of people as we walk through this book together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that, Jesus, you give us the opportunity to love you because of your pursuit for us, that you change us through what you've done on the cross, that you empower us with your spirit to live a life where the gospel grows and increases and bears fruit in our lives. Would we be people that would not minimize the cross, but that in turn would trust your spirit, would repent, would turn around from the ways we've been performing, the ways we've been pretending, so that the cross can get bigger. Help us do that. I pray as we study this letter, the book of Colossians, you would reign supreme in our life, Christ. May it be true. We love you. We pray.